Hello and welcome to a special edition of The Week at Work. It's a recording of a conversation between myself and Sinead Mercier and um, it's us walking around the streets of Dublin talking about Irish capitalism and in particular the Compador middleman sector that is the dominant strand of Irish uh, capitalism. I think it's a really interesting conversation. We venture into the environment, into climate change, into energy, tax and FDI investment, and also housing. During it, we reference the works of people like Patrick Breslin, Amanda Slevin and Vicenza Cerefice. It's a real conversation and I think you can hear us trying to come to some kind of conclusion as we're walking, as we're talking. And we're both trying to look at, at the Irish state in a post-colonial um decolonial way which is really hard for me to explain in an intro so i think the best thing to do is just to sit back and i hope you enjoy our conversation there's a quote here and it's from martin heidegger it's always problematic because he was a nazi but sure mm. this is where we are kind of these days if you, you can quote more Marx and you balance it out <laughs> <laughs> but he talks about there was this line i was kind of reading around kind of theory and he uses kind of this line that a boundary is not that at which something stops, but as the Greeks can recognise, the boundary is that from which something begins its presencing. So for me, that's what I think about in terms of Ireland, because of Connolly. It's not so much any kind of physical borders, but where does, where does kind of Ireland's kind of post-colonial energy start to show its presence? Mm. And I think where it does kind of show is in our tax code it's in kind of agriculture, it's in kind of investment, it's in, it's in kind of IDA, it's in law as well. So you had kind of post-colonial kind of studies since the 1980s in Ireland, heavily influenced by kind of Said, but they kind of went down the kind of literature kind of road. And I think that they missed the trick. And, and the trick that they missed was that where you see its presence, where it starts to show its kind of presencing, its boundary is in is in our kind of tax code. It's in our law code. Hmm. It's in our investment kind of strategy. When the IDA opens up Ireland in the 1960s, it's saying we have no environmental laws. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like it's saying this. It's one of its big kind of selling points. You know? Yeah. So it's trading. It's still trading something, but it's trading kind of tax code or kind of tax law. And I think that's where it gets kind of interesting. Yeah. Does that make sense, or am I just like random? No, no, it makes sense. Yeah. It's kind of like, ha- uh, I suppose, because this isn't just in Ireland, like Amanda will be saying that it's in the Caribbean as well. Mm. It's kind of like a dynamic of, yeah, like the, whatever the, the colonization process is. And I suppose like, how is Ireland different? Is it different because it's the first laboratory? Is it, dis- is it different because it's still colonized, but it's kind of still pretending that it's not with the whole issue of the North? Is it like the nature of law itself? Is is the type like is law itself in its current form or whatever was that replaced Breton law or Indigenous yeah. law? Is that what's kind of creating this dynamic? Do you know, or is it just like the relationship with the earth? And there's loads of stuff written about that about modernity and um, Francis Bacon. But yeah, like the state itself. Like what, yeah, that it's kind of like this, um, this emptiness 
you know, and it, I just find that really interesting, the cultural stuff as well, that like the culture is all, even the fact that post-colonialism can only talk in like the cultural studies or literature studies, and it's all about land or it's all about nature or it's all about like the people, but it's never about like, it hasn't folded into any of the other areas like geology that are actually, you know, about the land itself, if, if you get me. Like we, yeah, like, yeah. I suppose maybe explain a bit more about what the Comprador class is. I think where Ireland differs, with let's say kind of Caribbean or with let's say the US and kind of Central America, well, there's some kind of parallels there. But where Ireland differs is that Ireland's kind of colonial status wasn't just economic, it was also about strategy and, and war for Britain. It needed to protect its, its western flank. So um, that was Ireland's kind of importance. There are some kind of parallels with the way that Russia treats kind of Ukraine or Latvia or even Poland, you know. It sees them as we need to control these areas because these need to be buffers to stop us from being kind of invaded or, or from threatened. So you have in Ireland, even before kind of capitalism you know, kind of takes off, there's a colonial kind of relationship that's been uh, built up but it's one based on a, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a military strategy rather than an economic one. Uh, when taxes brought in in Ireland, you know, for our, like when Ireland's kind of national debt is first kind of floated, it's to pay for the army that's, it's to pay for the standing army. And the taxes that are being raised are to pay for the standing army. Ireland needs to pay for itself, but that means pay for the army that's there to stop it from being used by France or Spain or by someone else. So I think that's where it gets into, like, when you have something like, let's say, India, that is purely economic in terms of its extractiveness. I don't think, Ireland starts, that, that takes off in Ireland, but it happens later. It happens as capitalism starts to develop in Britain. Hmm. But it's that kind of hybrid kind of mix of, because it's so close to Britain, it's not just economic. It's also about kind of it's also about kind of um, a defence for Britain. So that's how Warren kind of sees it, you know, and it, and it still does. But you have this kind of hybrid kind of mix that is that is being kind of formed in Ireland in the 17th and 18th century, mm. and there are classes and there are class relations that are being kind of formed there as well. Like for me, you know, there's another line here that I saw it, it was, it was a tweet actually, which is always weird kind of, uh, you know, kind of quoting tweets. You printed off the tweet. Yeah, I did, yeah. <laughs> Old school, you know. Yeah. Um, but it talks about the locatedness of theory. And this is a new book about Arab kind of Marxism and says how kind of certain spaces are seen as drivers of theory while others are seen as mere sites of application of theory. And I think that's been, as again, this is me kind of, uh, you know, kind of focusing in on the Marxist kind of element of it. But, mm. it, it. but I think that's the problem, is that you have many kind of British kind of Marxism seeing Ireland as a place to apply theory, yes. rather than saying, this is, all, this is actually one of the oldest uh, spaces of capitalist extraction on the planet. So that has, to, that has to be kind of important. That must tell us something about how this, how this system kind of developed. Yes. And I, I think where you get f from Ireland is that idea of a competent middleman class. That Britain kind of stumbles into this 
as a way of kind of you know how to how to keep Ireland on side. Mm. You don't need to keep everyone on side, just certain classes in it, and then then let them kind of run it. So in Ireland, that becomes banking, finance, um, and and the cattle trades. So not even kind of agriculture, but it's the cattle trade. This is where kind of uh, I'm always cheating because I can fall back on that kind of. Because I'm coming from a Marxist kind of background, I have the theoretical you know, kind of apparatus in, in, in place that, that means that I, I, I can conveniently ignore certain elements, <laughs> which is probably a bad thing. What do you mean? Like well, I mean, like, like where I don't, where I have no kind of backing or kind of bearing is in that idea of, well, what was the change in terms of the land? Yeah from the 1600s to the 1800s, you know. I, I know that John Fian talks about this in like his work, but I, you know I mean? Because that's something that I wouldn't have kind of focused in on. So there's whole blind spots yeah. that I have there, you know, like a way like. But, it, but I think what's interesting is that you do have this, these kind of class relations that are being formed. There's a class being formed in Ireland that is not just an Anglo-Irish, um, class anymore that's you know kind of old english yeah, type thing this is an indigenous catholic mm. um middle class who um who whose economic interests are now tied to set, uh, certain elements of what britain does in ireland and that doesn't change after after 1922 yeah it's only kind of themselves you know yeah yeah doesn't change and we saw like that was when I first got chatting to you about this with the oil and gas exploration like that Providence Resources is like a for me like a classic version of it mm. you know they don't actually they haven't produced any oil and gas they just and their whole thing is attracting is maps making those maps and selling the maps of the sea uh, bed yeah and where the minerals might be and they they the, the state is like Amanda Slevin has written in their book, the state is just like a revolving door uh, for that in the department of, of like natural resources that the the Providence resource goes in and asks for mapping and the mapping then gets done in 2013 though it's like 20 million costs of the state. The private businesses are supposed to um, provide half of it, they don't. Um, and all those maps then, which you know Providence resources itself doesn't even do, <laughs> but the state does or like uh, you know the the whole kind of like finding of the minerals or exploring what they are or exploring their potential, they don't do any of that. They just no. do the whole, they just attract people and they sell them the legal frame, how to manage the legal framework, how to work the legal framework, how to meet the right people to get what you want, to lobby for what you want. And like that, that class of person, you can see them now, like after reading your book, I can see them now in other parts of like, you can see them in forestry, you can even see them within um, political parties as well, people that work and then go, yeah, it's just like that approach to the land as resource. The land is just something to extract, um, no matter who lives in it. Like you can see it with mining as well. Now that's a whole new kind of area that the same middlemen are kind of like coming in on. Mm. Providence resources will probably start working offshore wind, um, though probably not uh, at the same time. Um, depending on their ideology about fossil fuels but then when it comes to deep sea mining i can see them doing the exact same thing yeah you know and that's opening up deep sea mining is something that could definitely be opened up 
considering how the, the, the land of Ireland is being mapped, do you know? Every so often, like, I change on a, like on a kind of day-to-day -day basis, you know, as to whether this is a Compador class or a Compador sector. And I, it, mm. it depends on how I wake up in the morning, <laughs> as to which one. I'm leaning towards it's a Compador sector. It has an ideology. It's in elements of the state. Okay. But it's not the entire state. There's a tension there. Yeah. So I think, like, you know, even when we get into Ireland as a, you know, as a Compador state itself, well, you know, there, there are elements of Ireland that are fiercely anti-colonial, like in terms of sport, in terms of GDA, in terms of the language. The housing situation shows how that is probably a sector that has an ideology that is reproduced by elements of state and institutions, but it's not actually the entire state itself. It gets mm. kind of complicated. Yes. It's in housing because after 2008, before 2008, housing and construction, a commercial uh, construction arm, was a solely indigenous Irish capitalist venture. It was the Irish banks, and the Irish bank, AIB, Irish nationwide, and to a small extent, uh, Bank of Ireland, and politicians who would rewrite kind of planning law for their kind of interests. That class takes a fierce hit after 2008, or that sector does. And what you have is, from like 2009 onwards, is with NAMA, you have the Department of Finance moving into a sector of capitalist venture in Ireland that was never really involved in, kind of hands-on. Mm -hmm. So you have the NTMA and finance moving into construction. And what did he bring? They bring their FDI middleman, Compador, ideology to housing and the way to solve this is to bring in the multinationals to bring in kind of these companies and we will kind of facilitate them through like tax breaks and by giving them loans and we give them kind of NAMA money like NAMA is sitting on billions in cash 2013 and when you have cuts kind of galore it's mm. sitting in billions in cash and it's giving them out in very cheap loans to kind of multinational um, institutional corporate landlords to get into housing, to like solve kind of housing in Ireland. And we can see that yeah. kind of play out now. So for me, like that, there's a lot of things that are kind of reprehensible about kind of housing in, like in Ireland. But, but you can be, you, you can also step back and say that you can see here that there's, there's not so much a class kind of a dynamic, but there's a theoretical uh, friction that is happening here. You have elements of the state that for 80, 100 years have taught in a certain way as to how business should work. And that's in, and that's in agriculture and that's in finance um, and in the central bank. And very, very quickly, they move into a sector that they were never really hands-on about, mm. you know. It was just allowed kind of work and so forth. The banks, it was, it, it, they kind of looked after that. But they got kind of hands-on. And they bring in their FDI competent kind of middleman kind of you know kind of model into yeah. that whole sector. So we can see it play out now in kind of real time. And, and I think that's where it gets kind of interesting because then Ireland is not just a captured kind of competitor state as such. The dominant theory in it, the dominant you know theoretical template in it is a competitor one, but only because of the stake and institutions that back that, which are the heavy hitters, finance, central bank. Uh, justice, you know, you know what I mean. Like so, so it does. So like, 
I, I think where it gets interesting from an Irish kind of point of view, I'm going to stop talking now because I've talked no, no, way no, too no. Much. It's great. It's really good. It's helping me. Is in me terms too. of the EU. <coughs> yeah. Because that's what I'm going to ask. Because Ireland is so kind of mature down this road, its capitalist model has survived revolutions. Didn't miss a beat. Yeah. You're right. That fucking revolution of the people who are who are buried here. It did not miss a fucking beat. So, like, there are lessons there. Like, if you're if you're trying to set up a state in the 1990s, um, Ireland has been touted by the EU as the model for the former Warsaw Pact kind of countries, the former Eastern Bloc kind of uh, you know, countries that are now part of 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 kind of Western Europe, or like want to be. And they've been told, follow Ireland, Ireland's your model. Mm. And Ireland is like, there are people from the GIDA and from finance who are going over to the Czech Republic and over to Hungary and over to, 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 to you know, former Eastern Bloc countries, telling them this is what, this is how you should work, this is how the FDI works. You can see that, you know, it hasn't kind of worked out, but, but the plan from the EU was, Ireland, Ireland is your model. Ireland is what you should follow. Well, why would you do that? Because the EU itself is moving towards is is like empire building. So how do you keep elements of your kind of nation state or your kind of um, states mm. in this kind of a wider kind of this wider kind of legal kind of you know kind of apparatus? Yeah. You know, Ireland's part of a single kind of currency from 1814 until 1979. We know what it's like to be part of a currency while you're normally elegant independent. Mm. A history that has been a, a story that has been written out of Irish history. Incredible. Yeah. The closest I've gotten to the disaster that monetary policy was was that Patrick Honahan, in his most recent book, said maybe keeping the link with Sterling for so long wasn't probably a great idea. It was a terrible fucking idea for a new state. Mm. So, but how did they do it? Because there's a class involved there. They know how to they work the system. It is your kind of problems and resources. They will take the hand of foreign capital and walk you through the labyrinth that is Ireland because we know how to do that. Yeah. And you can see the EU is learning from this. I'm just thinking about through the energy uh, system in mm. Ireland because, um, and this is something I have to do more research on, uh, but my inkling is that like, uh, you know, the, you know all the talk of Brexit and the the focus on the UK leaving the EU. But before they did that, they you know they gutted a lot of environmental policy, and the influence that they had on energy policy as well was major. Particularly the Conservative government in the in the nineteen eighties. You know, Ronald Reagan. This is on EU policy now, is it? Or yeah. Just, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, Ronald Reagan in the US. Um, when it came to environmental issues, like even the word environmental impact assessment comes from this kind of uh, approach where you sustainably manage the lack, the, the damage that capitalist, capitalism does to the environment or development does to the mm. environment. And you maintain just a base amount of sustainable sustainability or kind of reproductive systems in the environment uh, and social reproductive systems in, in society. Uh, for the kind of, you know, the extractive project to go on on top. Um, and the environmental impact assessment 
uh, was kind of a way to undermine approaches which were calling for bans for things or mm -hmm. like a ban on something or, you know, stop producing asbestos. <laughs> Instead, we'll do a environmental impact assessment on the impacts that asbestos will have here. So it's kind of a, a way to undermine it. But also, um, Margaret Thatcher and the Conservative Party at that time, which is something I to look into more, were heavily influenced by that in the US and brought a lot of those concepts into the kind of EU dynamic. And on energy as well, the privatisation of energy, which is a massive Milton Friedman kind of project all across kind of South um, and Central America, uh, starting with Chile under the Pinochet dictatorship, which was the first energy system to be uh, privatised. But that project was then brought possibly to undermine trade union organising. Timothy Mitchell's book on carbon democracy points to the energy system as like a a massive kind of hold over claims to dem democratic participation. We'll just shut down your energy system through refusing to mine or refusing to work in it if you don't give us kind of the right to vote or um, you know proper social welfare for our communities. And then you know the kind of clash with the miners in in that time as well, you know probably had a huge influence on the Conservative Party's thinking, which was then brought into the kind of the EU frame. But I still have to track that. A bit more but my question to you I suppose is that you know a lot of probably what happened at that time of the neoliberal project and um, particularly on energy as well sounds so similar to what you're talking about in Ireland and Deccan Kybert has this thing about like how uh, the English needed Ireland to create Englishness or the idea of being English so like it, what might have, do you think that probably what might have happened there is that the neoliberal project was actually taken from this comprador group or sector or class in Ireland and then kind of adapted <laughs> and applied across the, like, you know, we, we point to Thatcher, we point to Reagan, we point to these kind of like figureheads, but was there something in the, the dynamic with Ireland, which is completely ignored, as you said, that probably got some of these kind of think tanks or some of these groups thinking, actually, no, this is a, this is a good way to work. Well, it's, 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 it's an interesting <laughs> point because, I mean, like, one of the problems I have with kind of British Marxism that's then applied yeah, to Irish Marxism is that... It ignores Ireland. But well, they also think that it worked off the desynchronous time frame. So, for Britain, any liberalism, which they think it is, anyway, starts showing up in the 1980s and the 1990s. So they just assume that that must have happened in Lagarde as well. Mm. It's going, no. So, like, no. I mean, like, it's always been neoliberal, what's now seen as being held neoliberal. But whereas Reagan and Thatcher do it through class conflict in the 1980s and Pinochet through just sheer murder, Ireland does it through, like, through, through kind of social partnership. Mm. So, like, when you see even more of the hollowing out of the state, just as weak as it was in Ireland, Where's that happening? It's happening with the, with the trade unions on board. That's a great stroke. So you've got class war in Britain and in the US, briefly anyway. You've, you've got actual war, shooting wars, in kind of South America and, and, and kind of Central America. And Ireland's fucking five-year so, a, a social partnership deals. Who wouldn't learn from that? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, how did you pull that off, that? You know what I mean? Like, you know, where you convinced the trade union movement to accept tax cuts instead of pay rises. Tax cuts that then lead to less money for infrastructure, social services, all those kind of things. For what? For a few bob in your pocket. 
you know? How did you pull it off? Mm. So, like, like th this is where I, this is back to the point, it just did the way NGL guys were saying, they thought I was just laughing, saying, we're your future. And you have no idea what is coming down there. You have no fucking idea as to what's coming down the line. We do because we've lived it. Yeah. There's a reason why Fianna Gael are all over Europe. All over the EU institutions. It's the big thing, even even Kobe. Kobe yeah. is just setting himself up for it. All, all he wants is a job in Europe. Yeah. You know? They can't because this is they have these skills because they they have honed these skills in the Irish kind of system. And they are completely transferable over. Yeah. You know? I mean even down to and look, we talked there about how, if I'm hearing you right, uh, Reagan decided to go for some kind of almost kind of pseudo kind of liberal way of bringing in kind of these things. We'll have environmental impact studies, so we'll own this language. What popped into my head was, was Rerum Novarum. The church does this in terms of like communism and, and like socialism in the 1880s. And Catholic social teaching is the dominant ideology of the Irish trade union movement. Without a doubt, it's not Connolly, it's not Labour and the Irish history, mm. it's Satan, not socialism, it's Catholic social teaching. So they actually, like, and, it, and they tried it in Greece and in Italy and in France and in Spain as well. It didn't quite work, but it does take off in Ireland. It really, after kind of 1940 as well, you know, it really, really does, you know. The first trade union kind of colleges that are set up down south have been run by the Jesuits, you know. Mm. Sociology is brought into kind of Maynooth in, in the 1960s. In Maynooth, it's been taught by priests. It just struck me, just me saying there about how, how they taught, if you can steal just a language and give something that's kind of, that looks like we're, you know, kind of we're doing something, that's a way of kind of negating some of the more kind of radical elements of it. Yeah. Even like liberation theology or... Oh, for fuck's you know, sake, you know. Negating the more radical elements of what was happening in South and Central. Yeah. yeah. I think, like, I don't think Ireland, I don't think it's a template. I don't believe in, in the templates anyway. I, I don't think there are kind of any, any kind of templates. But there are ideas that are transferable and there are practices that are kind of transferable and there are institutional apparatuses that are transferable and that's what Ireland brings to the table in terms of a neoliberal kind of policy. But it is a, because it is. And that's lost in terms of kind of modern kind yeah. of Western English speaking kind of Marxist kind of theory. They've no fucking understanding as to what Ireland is. And even Marxists here in Ireland I would argue don't. But I think that's also, you know, there is an element there of kind of, um, you know, looking down on, like you look down the people that you've colonised. So there's yeah. an element there of like, well, you know, how could, how could this ancient relationship between, you know, this imperial, what became a major imperial power, the UK, which is now colonising itself, how could the roots of that relationship have ended, have, have begun with Ireland? I suppose yeah. that whole kind of concept is just something that you know, a lot of Marxist thinking, which, you know, comes from other kind of English traditions or even the Lexit kind of thing. I just found, like, as you thinking about it now, that 
that relationship of 900 years and all the different dynamics, all the different kind of theories or particular classes, compador classes, that would have developed in that 900 year relationship, obviously is, has a massive influence on not only what went across the world and, and was supplied in kind of the, the, the Atlantic kind of aspects of the empire, but also what is now being applied at home in England. And just, there was a, there's a great book out just now, which I can't remember the name of, but we'll put it on the thing. <laughs> but they talk about how the social, the welfare state was just a blip in imperialism mm. and the approach of, of like, yeah, imperialism, whether it, but they talk about it from the history of feudalism to the present day and how the dynamic of feudalism is being reapplied. But it may not quite be feudalism. It, it may actually be the relationship that England built with its Irish neighbour. The, the approach of firstly settler colonialism of just clearing people off the land, realising that you know, they couldn't do that, you know, they probably didn't have the, the skills or didn't have the knowledge of the land or didn't, you know, needed kind of a, a low paid workplace uh, or kind of uh, workforce. So they needed to create a new relationship that wasn't just settler colonialism of clearing people away, to try that quite a lot. <laughs> But something else, some other dynamic, the building of this comprador relationship or this sector, um, which today we still have not tackled, you know, other than like, you know, we still have this kind of exploration in the cultural sectors. But when it comes to exploring that relationship, then as applies to the land or applies to like even planning, like I think planning and how law treats land in Ireland is so constitutive of this relationship. like. It creates, um, yeah, like that's something as well. I have to think about that more. <laughs> but anyway, the that relationship, creating this compador class, creating this compador kind of uh, sector or relationship, is just not really kind of looked at. It's kind of like yes, the welfare state was a blip in imperialism, but what are the relationships that imperialism built? not just through force, not just through clearing people away, but the kind of very, uh, very similar to Octavia Butler's work, I suppose, in, you know, you have to live with your oppressor. What, now that's in the slavery context, which is obviously entirely different and much worse, but there is something interesting there in this colonial relationship that Ireland has, where we can quite comfortably allow, you know, a Green Party minister or ministers who have relatives that fought in Republican movements that they are now allowing for the land to be mapped for mining companies from Canada which have horrific kind of human rights abuses kind of linked to them but they are perfect that they can map 37 percent of the land area for these companies without registering cultural heritage the fact that people live in these areas like how uh, how is there such comfort with doing that um, and it's happening in England itself. You now you have fracking across the country, you have kind of uh, those sort of relationships of the colonial coming home, mm. uh, coming back to the metropolitan centre, uh, happening there as well. And the dynamic, um, Ireland is at the root of that. However that dynamic happened or however those relationships were able to be built, um, that kind of like soft power or yeah um that comes from the relationship with ireland it's cons yeah 
constitutes it, you know? Yeah, I mean, like, just, just kind of bouncing off kind of what you're saying there, like, like I, I start off now it, it just with the premise that Ireland is one of the oldest kind of capitalist states in the world, and it's never seen that way. And I don't know why it's not, because it so blatantly is. It's not, it's not a capitalist state in terms of the centre, in terms of London, but that's, but that's like, capitalism is all about extraction from other areas or from other zones. This is happening to Ireland from the 1650s onwards, as Britain starts to become more kind of capitalist. Its relationship with Ireland becomes more extractive kind of capitalist then as well. Not always. Like there's a, there's a yin yang stuff that's going on. It mm. tries to stop, um, capitalist growth in Ireland uh, but the British state just wasn't strong enough until really until the, the 1740s, 1750s and then it's able to really start shutting down things you know I mean it tries but it's you know like it tries to bank on the cattle trade with Britain and Ireland just opens up to Spain and to France it starts like selling cattle to the continent so, so it's not working for them you know because they're constantly worried about Ireland on their flank, turned into a capitalist power, independent of Britain itself. So it's always struggling just to make sure that it, that, that doesn't happen. So it's whether you would call it a capitalist state. There are some who would, who would probably argue it's not a state. It's but like it's certainly a a sphere of of capitalist extraction from the mm. 1650s, 1750s onwards. Definitely. Um, so it's a mature, extractive capitalist zone, and it's still going. So if you're a capitalist, you would look at Ireland and go, well, what lessons can we learn here as, as to how they pull this one off, you know? Yeah. Hence you have Ireland selling itself as the way forward to the former Canadian bloc in the countries in, in, in the 1990s as part of a wider EU kind of project, because it has those skills, it knows how to do these things. It knows how to keep kind of social partners on board. It's worked it out, you know? Mm. Yeah. It's very depressing, isn't it? Well, no, I don't <laughs> think it's depressing. I think it's, all, it's never depressing to know the roots of things, you know? The causes of things, my alma mater, LSE. But like, you know, even down to, like, you know, if we can get to the shape and kind of dynamic of what is kind of our, of, mm. of our kind of capitalism, in all of its complexity, in its indigenous kind of, uh, Indigenous kind, of, indigenous kind of capitalist class as well as that kind of compador kind of sector or class as well and how these things are held together by institutions of the state including the church yeah um i think that's where it gets kind of interesting you know i'm just going to look up the name of that octavia butler book because i think have you ever read it uh, i think is it genesis octavia butler have you ever read octavia butler yeah i love her yeah she's amazing She's brilliant. And pulls, um, no, and pulls no punches either. Yeah. Xenogenesis is the name of the book. It's uh, Half Three. Half Three. Yeah. Xenogenesis, that, do you know that trilogy? Do you read that one? Where the aliens kind of... Not yet. No, I actually no. have it at home. I haven't, oh. I, I, I haven't delved into it yet. Okay. Because like, I always find... Because like, I became obsessed with science fiction because, like, as you said, it gets depressing. <laughs> So I started looking, reading so much science fiction to kind of imagine new worlds or yeah. different ideas. Um, 
and like yeah like when you read the xenogenesis it sounds to me so there's these aliens that come <laughs> and uh basically uh not quite well uh for, for they take over the planet so they forcibly take over the planet um but then they kind of through a process of like uh kind of uh seduction like basically seduce the humans that are there so they don't kill them all they kill some of them that fight back yeah but they basically seduce them and start like intermingling with them and it just seems to me that like the the creatures that result from those unions sound like this comprador class <laughs> you know that they've kind of learned how they think in both ways so they know both the uh, colonizer and the colonized um they're mestizo but they're like kind of they are a they they operate in such a way to like continue the force assimilation or not even assimilation of the country but like the extraction of of the resources or the the product or the the land of that country um but like it's very difficult dealing with them because like in many ways they are us they are of us they would they might go largely to the private schools or there might be ways to kind of section them off from the rest mm. of the Irish society but they are also yeah like how do you manage that relationship and I really like that book Anish Erhachtan Tower the new one that's out I don't know it oh McVeigh and um, uh, you'd love it it's really really good it's Irish language is it no the, just the title is uh, the the oh Roshi the Baha Walia do you know that song right I with a McVeigh. It's about colonialism and Ireland um, in the present day. But in the end of it, they talk about Irishness not as something that you're born into, but as something that you kind of, that you choose. And it's kind of like you, the choice that you have is the choice against becoming the comprador, against kind of opening up the country to exploitation and extraction. Uh, but it's, um, even though you might think that's the right thing to do for the country, but the alternative choice is to be anti-imperial and unite with international countries and other groups. See your, you know, see yourself as part of a, of a kind of a, a worldwide kind of call to, to freedom. Do you know? It's an interesting point. I mean, even even going back to the, even what you said there, there about kind of the Octavia, uh, Butler, um, aliens and uh, and our and our helpers because like what kind of popped into my head was where this kind of Comprador theory comes from and it really comes from Mel. Okay, um, yeah, yes. Mel was the first one to really kind of put forward and he wasn't, he didn't theorise the class. The class existed. Um, Chinese kind of nationalism of the 1910s and like 1920s was saying how do we get rid of, of, of the Japanese, how do we get rid of the English, how do we get rid of all these things. It was Mao in the 1920s sat down and went, for our independence kind of movement, can we trust this class? Mm. Can we trust these kind of compadors? And he reckoned, no, you can't. He said, we can trust the nationalists and we can form kind of alliances with just old school kind of nationalism until, until we get rid of the Japanese and, and other kind of um, imperial kind of forces and then we just kill them. <laughs> Oh no. Right. 
<laughs> but he ended up in. But well, it's kind of why he did. But he ended up in like Taiwan, and that and that's what kind of <laughs> Taiwan is now. Right? Um, but he said that you cannot work with the compadres because they just they're tied with the imperialists, and mm. that's it. When you see it here in Ireland, um, going back again, we are in the Garba Hill, and like James Connolly, Connolly walks into into the GPO with old school kind of nationalism. And the debate here is why did he do that? He did it because they would have because they had fucking guns. Mel would have said Mel did exactly the like same thing. That's what you do. But he also walked in he didn't walk in with the kind of compadors, but they show up in like nineteen nineteen. You know, so the big farmers then get involved. And then they have views as to what the state is going to look like, you know. Mm. They they tolerate the like Sinn Féin court, courts and, until 1922, and then he sent in the like, army just to shut them all down, like you know. Mel mm. um, would have just shot them all. Oh. <laughs> they end up here as as Taoiseachs and as as a government ministers. Mm. So, like, it's not like the Compadre class in in China would have been aghast if you said that they were not kind of patriotic and not kind of, they would, because like, same as the Commodores here, get highly offended if you don't see them as being kind of, you know, as, as nationalists. Being nationalist is not part of it. You're nationalist, but you have absorbed into your view of what is kind of nationalism, this, this kind of colonial imperialist kind of relationship that, that butters your bread. Tony, thank you very much for joining us for this interview. Thank you. Providence Resources has attracted some heavyweight partners, including ExxonMobil, ENI, and Petronas for its ambitious offshore island oil and gas exploration, appraisal, and development projects. What do these heavy hitters see in Providence Resources' portfolio of offshore island projects? I think what they see is a local partner in Providence Resources, a company that has actually been an operating offshore island in various corporate guises for over 30 years, and its current incarnation is Providence. We've been around since 1997, so we have extensive knowledge of the basins offshore island, the fiscal regime, the licensing and operating conditions, and I think that's what these companies like when they come to a new country. They like to have a local partner to help them navigate through particular issues that may come before them. What are your thoughts on the fiscal regime in Ireland for oil and gas companies? I think the fiscal regime in Ireland is very positive. It's attractive. It was purposely created to try and entice inward investment, which is what Ireland needs in terms of a more wells drilled offshore island. So with a tax take of 25%, corporation tax, going up to 40% for very large fields, it is one of the more attractive fiscal regimes in the world, no royalties. And as I say, it was particularly designed that way to attract inward investment because Ireland needs more wells drilled. There's only been about 150 55 wells drilled offshore island in the last 40 years, and so I think the government recognised the need to try and attract inward investment. Yeah, so like that's, I just found that fascinating. I just thought like the mining, and then you have this really interesting dynamic where like the Green Party, for example, who you think would be like on the side of environmentalism in terms of protecting Canary National Park, like one of our last kind of semi-wildish areas, um, or cultural heritage, uh, and yet the minister opens up Leitrim for mining and other areas because, uh, oh, we need it for the green transition. 
but it's like, first of all, only 5% of all those minerals, this is Vicenza's work now, not my own, okay. um, actually goes towards uh, green kind of technologies, you know, um, if even that, actually the majority of the gold in the world is used for um, literally a financial speculative investment, just sitting in banks. I have my money in gold, do you know? Um, but like, yeah, that was his rationality. Oh, I have to do this. My hand was pushed uh, because, you know, the green transition needs these minerals. But like, it's, yeah, it's not like a real thing at all. And it's, it's just this really interesting clash of the comp. So there is this idea of ecological modernization where you know, um, there's two trends in environmentalism. Well, not true, that's been simplistic, but you have like an environmentalism that's like about degrowth and back to the earth and back to the land and yeah. all that. Uh, and there's loads of different dynamics in that. And then you have like what we have at the moment, which is where, you know, pump out the renewables, kind of the EU, the non-Natura 2000, non-biodiversity aware EU kind of perspective of just replace everything with renewables. Um, but that's not what actually is happening in practice. In practice, that ecological modernization approach is just increasing renewables alongside fossil fuels. But then um, what I find interesting, and I think there's space for that, to, like, I think this idea of like modernity, like Bosaurus, I think it can be reclaimed. Like, and this is something I want to kind of write about and think about a bit more, but I think modernity in the Irish decolonial, anti-colonial, anti-imperialist, perspective can be reclaimed. I think Ordna Crusher can be reclaimed and like we can fix the thing with the eels <laughs> and power the country. I think that's a brilliant point, you know, because like going back to our earlier point, like it's we know that it's a powerful kind of, it's a powerful kind of narrative. Irish yeah. Uh, the, the, the Irish, Irish kind of majority because the compadors use it. The compadors use it. They wouldn't yeah. be fucking using it but he, if it didn't the, resonate. That's you know what, what I mean? the like, contrast because I think the Green Party Minister granting so those mining it. licenses is the comprador ecological modernization. It's about extraction. It's about the take. It's about what Naomi Klein talks about, like take, take, take until there's nothing left, and like whatever's left goes to like the not even the comprador himself. Like it's a fascinating thing, yeah, but it's you, a clash yeah. between the two. It's yeah. a clash between Ordna Crusher and this fabulous decolonial narrative, and this petty, selfish like reductive like 12.5 tax rate <laughs> ecological modernization and that's the choice we have to make now you know mm. in this era are we going for one or the other you know like are we extracting destroying the sites of like uh the two Danan or high brazil for gold mining for elon musk or are we going to build our you know amazing offshore wind like energy efficient like uh, no energy poverty like bring it across the world like marine natural her like natural heritage areas kind of thing yeah. you know so you can win, <laughs> not, that is fantastic i mean so so you can win energy in a decolonial way decolonial way and order to yeah. be a world leader in how to actually pull that off yeah how how can that'd we do be it? fantastic yeah because we're not doing it right now and, and patrick would be the expert in this we're not doing it that right now yeah. but i do and i know but i think that like i think environmentalism is stuck in this funny period at the moment where it's like harness like even the book i'm reading here everyone agrees that indigenous kind of well actually no not everyone agrees but there's this narrative at the moment which is really powerful that indigenous kind of views of land um from like you know from the first peoples of canada to uh like uh, the amazon and, and bolivia and the rights of mother earth and panchamama they can lead the way on climate action but 
we are in a period where we have to get to that point. How do you get to living like in communion with the land, having these philosophical perspectives of of no thing on the planet or no creature is, is any more valuable or less valuable than another. But in this in-between stage, how do we force, you know, when you do need this Green New Deal, how can you make that Green New Deal anti-colonial rather than just Tesla, do you know? Like that idea of, of you know, grabbing that, that tension that's there, like in Ireland, where it is at the same time a space of kind of a decolonial, um, you know, kind of a dynamics yeah. and a space of some of the most advanced uh, post-colonial extractive kind of practices on the planet is a world leader yes. in, in how to do it and both exist in the same space. Yes, it's amazing. Like, and it's so, what can we do? And the Compadors draw down that power for their own, for, if their own kind of, extractive kind of resources. Yeah, and so you're so about, right. They talk about the decolonial project. Like, just as we saw there, they use the Virgin Mary, the, the statue of um, the Virgin Mary. They use the little clay Irish pipes with the shamrock on them to, like, yeah. Ben like, the blah. Yeah, being the blah. Like, they use these decolonial narratives to, like, <laughs> watch what we're doing. And the horrible thing is, what I find is that, like, I think Irish environmentalism is terrified of the anti-colonial. I think they do not want to talk about the decolonial or the anti-colonial. I don't know why exactly but like there's a real element of like um yeah like it about an internationalist kind of more of a sort of a we're part of a global wave a global green wave or yeah a post-cold war you know and um, there's no left or right there's only this but it's like that's not radical at all and it's, it's been shown it ends up with like community energy kind of narratives which absolutely do me in i cannot stand this idea of like wealthy people with solar pans in their house and that's like the most radical we can be and it's like Ordna Krusha in every way possible was far more radical than that idea of wealthy people getting a bit of a tax break or getting a bit of a like getting paid for putting energy into the grid like that's not you're missing what energy subsistence really is as like a new young state coming out of the hand of the oppressor rebuilding itself that's energy subsistence <laughs> and I just find like I just I don't know what's going on with the movement, but like, that's something to explore. That idea that despite what Simon Coveney and all them say, Ireland is actually in a prime position for a genuine decolonial yes. energy strategy because- and the Compadors And the Compadors get it because they are trying to appropriate that history and its language for their own kind of purposes. They wouldn't yeah. be doing that if it didn't have such deep and strong kind of cultural roots here. Yeah. It's fascinating stuff. Speaking of cultural roots, I love how two Irish people don't have raincoats sitting out in the rain talking yeah. about the <laughs> They don't have raincoats. <laughs>